So, uh, for those of you don't, who don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, and um, we're in week two of our fall series, Psalms, Songs of the Heart. Last week, Matthew kicked us off and introduced the Psalms, which is the hymn book of ancient Israel, and we heard, also got to hear from Nina Balmaceda of Peace and Hope International about Psalm 146, a hymn of justice. <clears throat> this week, we're going to continue that, and we're going to look at Psalm 13, which Paul just read. And we're going to talk about grief and lament, tools for life. Grief and lament as tools for life. The dictionary defines lament as, in a number of ways, it's a verb to mourn a person's loss or death, it's to express one's deep grief about something, to express regret or disappointment over something considered unsatisfactory, unreasonable, or unfair. It's also a noun, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow, a song, piece of music, or poem expressing such emotions or an expression of regret or disappointment, a complaint. Now, there's a key difference between the dictionary definition of lament and the biblical definition of lament, and we'll come to that in a moment, but lament is actually fairly common in the Bible. Almost a third of the 150 psalms that we have are psalms of lament, psalms of complaint. But Eugene Peterson notes that up to 70% of the psalms contain some lament, up to 70%. That is, they may not be lament psalms per se, but they have within them some lament, some complaint. You may be familiar with at least one of the Psalms of Lament, Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that Jesus cried out from the cross. Uh, The book of Lamentations, written by the prophet Jeremiah, is unsurprisingly a lament. Nehemiah laments when he hears of the state of Jerusalem. The prophet Habakkuk begins his writings with a lament, with words that may resonate with us. It says, God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil, stare trouble in the face day after day? Anarchy and violence break out, quarrels and fights all over the place. Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. Lament is woven throughout the Bible. Suffering and grief are intertwined with the story of the gospel and the stories of our own lives as well. You may be grieving the loss of loved ones, the loss of a job, the loss of health. You may be reeling from an experience that has led to the loss of a sense of safety or trust or the loss of a relationship. You may be disappointed by an opportunity that didn't work out, an expectation that fell short, a dream that died, a closed door in your life or one that seems to be closing while you watch it helplessly, unable to do anything about it. Well, I'm not just trying to be a Debbie Downer. I'm not just trying to make you feel sad. The reality is, uh, as I've said before, change equals loss equals grief. Change equals loss equals grief. And I don't know about your, your lives, but mine rarely ever sits still. Even changes that are good mean that things are lost and that there are things to grieve. And whatever our grief or our pain or our suffering, it must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. For in the words of Richard Rohr, if we do not transform our pain, we'll most assuredly transmit it. Let's say that together. If we do not transform our pain, we'll most assuredly transmit it. It will come out in other ways. It will hurt other people. It will stunt our own formation. Let me give a a really silly example. 
when the football team I root for, the Seattle Seahawks, when they lose, it casts a bit of a shadow over the rest of my day. I used to get real irritated and agitated and impatient and not feel like doing anything at all with anyone. And when I say used to, I mean four weeks ago when they last lost. <laughs> but the only person, other person who was around was my wife, Carolyn. And so she would get the brunt of that irritation and agitation and impatience and general grumpiness. Now, it's not obviously not her fault that a team I have no control over or influence on doesn't play as well as they could, but she's the only outlet, and she's the closest one. Now, you can say that I care too much about football, and that's probably somewhat true, but it's also been one small way in which God has been teaching me how to handle disappointment in healthier ways. <laughs> and therefore also how to handle more significant pain and suffering as well. See, I don't think it'd be too controversial to make the observation that for the most part, we don't spend a lot of time in the lament psalms, or for that matter, in lament. We don't spend a lot of time in grief. We don't spend a lot of time unpacking our pain. And understandably so. It's uncomfortable and overwhelming. There's so much of it to deal with, whether we're looking at our own lives or the constant stream of tragedy and suffering that we may see on social media or in the news, that we actually don't have the capacity. There's so much of it. We actually don't have the capacity to properly process it. And so we get desensitized to it and we hold pain, the pain only fleetingly because there's something else that just happened or something else to deal with or something else to not know what to do with. But I think what happens, what is happening as a result, is that our souls get formed in ways that can't handle pain and suffering. That don't know how to sit with grief or difficulty that constantly and creatively seek, find ways to seek respite from any discomfort. And we may not even know what to do with our grief. It's something I felt at times. A couple weeks ago, I was in a class with sociologist Christina Cleveland, and we were talking about power and inequality in the church and in the world. And, and she said this, she said, when you lament, it's not bad to not know what to do. When you lament, it's not bad to not know what to do. Now, some of us need to hear that, especially in this city, or, or maybe in your line of work where you're paid to know what to do. But really all of us who find it hard not knowing, not being in control, all of us need to hear that. We may not know what to do with our grief or how to process it, and perhaps sometimes we wish our grief could be handled as quickly and effectively and tidily as possible. But it can't be handled quickly, effectively, or tidily. Another name for the Psalms of Lament is Psalms of Disorientation. Psalms of Disorientation or Darkness. Sometimes when we only sing happy and joyful songs, I can wonder if I'm leaving the land of I'm reminding myself of great truths and I'm straying into the land of I'm actually deluding myself and playing make-believe. Theologian Walter Brueggemann says that when we deny lament, we deny the language of disorientation, the language of reality not being and not feeling as it should be. And when we do this, we invite people either to great guilt, saying it's all my fault, 
or to great denial, saying there's nothing wrong. He says that psalms of disorientation lift up and call attention to the reality of human loss and human pain without making moral judgments about whose fault it is. It is simply a given of human life that needs to be processed theologically. These psalms of lament are important because they're models of how ancient Israel and also the church learns to have faith in the midst of disorientation and pain and loss and learns to worship and pray in the midst of disorientation and pain and loss. I'd like to learn to have faith and to worship and pray in the midst of disorientation and pain and loss. I'd like to learn to have faith that doesn't play make-believe, that has something genuinely hopeful to offer in the harsh realities of life and our everyday. As my spiritual director taught me and as I'm learning through experience, grief is a lifelong event. And it does not have one trajectory. Grief is a lifelong event. It does not have one trajectory. Loss is not isolated to one incident. Sometimes you never see or know loss or grief until it hits you. Because it can come and come back at any time. Sometimes in strong waves. Sometimes in little ripples. So if change equals loss equals grief. And if grief is a lifelong event. And if we do not, if, if we do not transform our pain, we'll transmit it. Then I think it's urgent for us, important for us. If we want to not hurt other people, but also if we just want to live with wholeness and integrity, it's important for us to learn how to handle our grief, how to allow God to transform our pain. I think there's something to the fact that lament is found throughout Scripture, that a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms, and that 70% of them contain some lament, because that feels more real. Right? It feels more in touch with the everyday. Maybe God has given us right here the tools we need to live as fully as Jesus invites us to live. And so let's take a look at what we can learn about grief and lament from Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is one of the many psalms written by David. We don't know exactly when he wrote it, but we can probably guess or deduce his situation from what he says. He may have written it when he was on the run from King Saul who was trying to kill him as a threat to the crown, or he may have written it when he was on the run from his own son Absalom, who was also trying to kill him and take his crown. Either way, not the situation you would want to be in. And this is how he begins. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? As one commentary notes, the distress David is experiencing is holistic. It's spiritual. He asks if God has forgotten him. It's personal as he wrestles with his own thoughts and sorrow. And it's circumstantial as it reflects an external situation, in this case, a person who is set against him. I don't know if this is news to you, but you really have no control over what other people will do how they'll respond or react to you, how they'll see you or hear you, whether or not they'll like you or seek your good. You have no control over that. In the case of both Saul and Absalom, David bore them no ill will. Indeed, he loved them deeply. And yet they sought his death. They sought his destruction. They pursued him relentlessly. And so the spiritual practice that I learned from this is to name the pain. 
Name the pain. So often we don't stop or at least slow down enough to name the hurt that has been done to us or the harm that has been inflicted or the suffering we're enduring. We don't name the pain. Instead, we just add it to the pile of things we're carrying somewhere in the back of our minds, thinking that as long as we're able to function without breaking down, it's dealt with. But we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, that isn't healthy or sustainable in the long term. I was away this past week on a, a trip to Wisconsin, was scheduled to return on Friday afternoon. And the plane was supposed to leave Wausau at just after noon, and you know, I'd have about an hour and a half between landing in Detroit and making my connecting flight back to DC. And I remember when I booked the ticket, I thought, you know, an hour and a half, that's about the right length of time. I don't have to rush through the airport, but I also don't have to hang out all day in the airport. So I get to Wausau Airport, and there's a half hour delay already, because the plane um, that's taking us to Detroit hasn't yet arrived from Minneapolis. No problem. Still an hour to spare. But the plane doesn't arrive in Wausau until 12.15, 10 minutes after we were originally supposed to leave. I'm still fairly calm, doing some centering prayer, <laughs> kind of thinking, good thing I'm flying back on Friday and not on Saturday. And then I start wondering about how Matthew's going to respond to having to preach with 24 hours notice. <laughs> and it spiraled a little bit. Um, we got on the plane, and now our scheduled departure is almost an hour later than planned, which means I'd probably end up having about 10 minutes to get from the landing gate to the departure gate in Detroit. And I'm looking at the airport map and trying to figure out what route to go and how long it's going to take and if I'll make it and what happens if I don't make it and what an inconvenience this is. And then the pilot's voice comes over the intercom and says, sorry for the delay, folks. There was a winter storm in Minneapolis, so we had to clean ice off the wings before we took off. And I thought to myself, what's worse, a little delay or the plane crashing because it wasn't properly taken care of? Now, in the short term, a little delay can feel like the worst option. It can feel inefficient or inconvenient to slow down to make sure everything's OK. And the delay might not be caused by snow and ice. Maybe it's a loose bolt somewhere. Maybe it's a mechanic who failed to properly seal a fueling cap or an engineer who didn't check a strut. All sorts of things can slow us down. And despite my best efforts of scurrying through Detroit airport, I missed my connecting flight, but was able to get checked on to a later flight, leaving just a couple hours later, for which I'm tremendously grateful. And yet, for some of us, there was no later flight. For some of us, there was no backup option. Things just didn't work out. And we're still grieving. Name the pain. It's been a hard year for me, personally. The church transition this summer, being commissioned out of the district church and launched on our own as Christ City Church has brought about new life and great joy as I look around me with tremendous gratitude at you all, what God has been doing. But I also experienced the loss of community, the pain of separation from a church I'd helped to plant seven years ago, people I'd helped disciple. Change equals loss equals grief. I had to name 
the loss of idealism. There was a time I thought I'd be at the district church, the first church I served as a pastor, the church in which I discovered my calling. There was a time I thought I would serve there for the rest of my life. And maybe that was unrealistic, but it was there and it was lost. I had to name the loss of control and the pain of helplessness as various friends processed the transition in different ways, including some who stepped away from our community for a period of time. And that's another thing to remember. Everyone processes their grief differently. And we have no control over how they process their grief. And with the busyness of getting the new church set up and writing a constitution and bylaws and getting incorporated as a nonprofit and navigating a new leadership structure with an elder board and getting small groups up and running and shifting to a new online database, it was real easy for me to just go and do and be busy all the while sensing the shadow of loss and grief and pain that was lurking in the back of my mind, bubbling under the surface of my soul, all the while knowing I had stuff to process. And I was finally able to do that a few weeks ago. I went away for a week-long retreat. I didn't solve everything, but man, all the stuff that had been bottled up, that had been pent up, that had been shut up, all of that came out and I was able to begin, let me stress again that grief is a lifelong process, so I was able to just begin working through things. Because it wasn't just that I was able to write, you know, write things down or sit in silence or be out in nature, it was that I was able to engage with the one thing, the one thing that distinguishes the dictionary definition of lament from the biblical definition of lament, and that's God. That's God. Let's look at the text again. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. If the first P is pain, the second P is prayer. In the same commentary I mentioned before, it notes the identical dimensions that are encapsulated in David's prayer. It's spiritual. Not least because it's an appeal to God, a request for restored divine favor. It's personal as he wants to see again. He wants to be renewed. And it's circumstantial as he appeals to the reality of his enemies, his foes. Here's the thing that we can learn from lament. From the brutal honesty of words like those here in Psalm 13 or in Psalm 44 when the psalmist accuses God of walking away from the people he promised to protect and he yells, Get up, God! Are you going to sleep all day? This is what I learned. Nothing is off limits with God. No prayer is inappropriate. God is big enough. Our God is big enough to handle anything and everything that we can throw at Him. Even when our suffering and our pain and our grief shows itself not in sadness, but in anger and in rage. There's a category of psalms known as the imprecatory psalms, where the psalmists call down curses or judgment on their enemies. Psalm 137 talks in graphic language about what the writer wants to happen to Babylon and to the children of Babylon. Psalm 58.6 calls on God to break the teeth in their mouths. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> And 
And just like with lament psalms and grief, we can feel uncomfortable with imprecatory psalms and anger. We might think that well, Christians aren't supposed to feel that way. But as Brueggemann would put it, we do feel that way sometimes. And so the question is, when we feel that way, what do we do? We could act it out, which is destruction and perpetuates the cycle of violence. We could deny it, which is repression. We all know it'll get transmitted somewhere else in someplace else, probably far bigger and messier than it ever was to begin with. Or we can give it to God. We can give it over to God. Acknowledging how our emotions are consuming us and choosing to give them over, to lay them before the only one who can handle it all and perfectly rightly. Now, don't get me wrong. Therapists and counselors and spiritual directors can help. I say that from experience. But no human being was ever meant to carry the full weight of another's soul. None but Jesus. Anger isn't bad, per se. It tells us something about ourselves. But note where the Psalms tell us to take it. Note where it's directed to the one and at the one who stays with us even as we beat our fists in helpless rage. The one who holds us close and says, I can take it. Tell me everything. In her book, Daring Greatly, Brene Brown created a manifesto for wholehearted parenting, and I think it reflects well the heart of God for us, His children, especially this line. Together we will cry and face fear and grief. I will want to take away your pain, but instead I will sit with you and teach you how to feel it. I will want to take it away, but instead I will sit with you and teach you how to feel it. As I said earlier, the Christian life, the invitation of the gospel, is not to live in a fake world, but to live fully in this world, to live the eternal kind of life now and then into eternity. As Thomas Merton would say, indeed, the truth that many people never understand until it is too late is that the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer. The more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer. And yet how often do we try to avoid it? Run away from it, do anything to pretend it doesn't exist or it doesn't affect us. How often do we numb ourselves or distract ourselves or keep ourselves busy so that we don't have to sit with what feels like an overwhelming, full to overflowing level of emotion, particularly raw emotions like grief and pain and anger? Maybe it's pornography that you turn to. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's something more innocuous, like Netflix or shopping or scrolling through social media and swiping up to refresh just in case something new and more interesting has posted in the last 30 seconds. What is it that gives you a little hit of dopamine to keep you going? What is it it just eats up enough time that you can fool yourself that you, you don't have enough margin to deal with it. The things you know you have to deal with. Here's a spiritual practice. In prayer, identify your counterfeit coping mechanisms. 
Identify your counterfeit coping mechanisms. What you do instead of sitting with the pain. Pay attention to them. Note when the temptation arises. Note how you spend your time and what you spend your time doing. Now you will have to figure out what to do with them at some point, but first start by noticing them. Let's return to Psalm 13, verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Between verses 4 and 5, there's waiting. And we know there's waiting because as much as we would love for our pain and our grief to be transformed into praise within the span of six verses, we know it isn't that easy. It isn't that quick. There was a time in my life when I used to write songs a lot. And there was an occasional song, rare, but that I would come up with it in 10, 15 minutes and be pretty happy with it and actually wouldn't change anything. But most songs I'd write the majority of and then, you know, I'd be carried along in a certain emotion or feeling or caught up with a particular person or situation. And then I'd kind of be stuck, not knowing quite how to finish it, knowing it wasn't quite complete, knowing there was something missing. And I'd have to sit with it, sometimes over months, sometimes over years, to wait with it, to see what was revealed. I think that's true with our pain and our grief, too. I think that's what we can learn from these psalms about lament. See, after the pain and after the prayer, I mean, I guess the third P could be praise, but I actually prefer perspective. Perspective. Once again, the transformation is holistic. It's spiritual, as David sings, no more of God's hidden face, but of his unfailing love. It's personal as David's heart sorrow has been turned to heart joy. And it's circumstantial as the enemy has been replaced with God's full sufficiency, God's provision, God's goodness. You know, I would be surprised if everything was suddenly better. You know, his enemies decided to turn on each other and he was returned to his previous glory. I don't know that life works like that. Or that God works like that. Instead, what happens, what's possible, when we name our pain and bring it into the light of the Lord, what's possible is new life and right perspective and soul transformation. The leader of the retreat I talked about earlier, he says, he says that it is grief that makes us more empathetic, more gracious, and more compassionate. It is grief that makes us more empathetic, more gracious, and more compassionate. It's often through the transformation of our grief that God teaches us the things we need to know, that God forms us in the ways we need to grow. It's in bringing our pain and our grief and our sorrows into the redeeming presence of God that our wounds are transformed into sacred wounds. And we become, in the words of Henry Nouwen, wounded healers those who are able to bring healing out of and in the midst of our transformed pain rather than transmitting our pain and inflicting more hurt and violence on others. It's not for no reason that Jesus is referred to as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
It's not for no reason that he says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. And to quote Walter Brueggemann again, Only those who embrace the reality of death will receive the new life. Implicit in his statement is that those who do not mourn will not be comforted, and those who do not face the endings will not receive the beginnings. I used to think it curious that when having to quote scripture on demand, someone would inevitably say, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. But now I understand. Jesus knew what we numb ones must always learn again. That weeping must be real because endings are real. And that weeping permits newness. His weeping permits the kingdom to come. The promise is that God can and does bring life out of death. God can and does bring joy out of sorrow. God can and does transform our pain and our grief and our loss and us in the process. Author Jonathan Martin offers this reminder that in the end, redemption will be at least as thorough as pain is. Getting into every crack and pore, filling every gap. Redemption will be at least as thorough as pain is. The reality is that, as my spiritual director would say, the boulder of grief may never get lighter, but our backs can get stronger. The boulder of grief may never get lighter. We may never get that loved one back. We may never get that restored relationship that we wanted, but our backs can get stronger. In this world, we will know hardship and trouble and pain and change and loss and grief. But God promises to form us and grow us and mature us as we live every part of our lives with Him. And so the spiritual practice I'd suggest here is this. Find time, well, make time to regularly grieve and mourn and lament, whether individually or communally. To bring your pain into the presence of God so that it can be transformed. See, in order to celebrate well, we have to be able to grieve well. In order to celebrate well, we have to be able to grieve well. And let me also encourage you to be patient with yourself and with the process. There's a tendency, as I mentioned earlier, it's to want to get it over and done with. But it's taken me five years of counseling and spiritual direction to, to even feel like I'm beginning to start processing grief in a healthy way. And still I feel like most of the time I don't know what I'm doing. Remember that grief is a lifelong process and, and remember also to make space and time for it now. But since we're all here together, I'd like to make a little bit of time for us all to begin processing whatever God would have us engage in. Now, you should have a, a half sheet of card or and pen on your seat or one nearby you uh, if you need a card or pen, um, just put your hand up and we'll get you one or both of that. So does anybody need a couple up front here? At, uh, or you can do this in your journal if you, you have one with you. At the top of the page, I'd invite you to write as reminders and as prompts, change equals loss equals grief. And... If we do not transform our pain, we'll transmit it. Change equals loss equals grief. 
And if we do not transform our pain, we'll transmit it. And just see what comes. Don't overthink it. Don't force it. It's not about manufacturing or manipulating our emotions. Maybe, maybe God has another time for you. Or maybe this is as good a time as any. Maybe this time is already overdue. Maybe there are things that God has been patiently waiting for you to notice and name and lay before him. We'll play a track at the, uh, in a moment, and after a few minutes of that, I'll come up and transition us to communion. But then, as a follow-up, let me also encourage you this week to set at least a half an hour aside to sit with this again in the presence of God. And then also to make an appointment to meet up with someone you trust and share with them some of the things you wrote. But before we enter this time together, let me read a poem to prepare us. It's called The Healing Time by Pesha Joyce Gertler. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections. And I lift them, one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life, all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, Holy, holy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, divine community, come be with us and be among us. Come sit with us in our grief and our pain. Come bring your healing, your transformation, and your presence. Amen.